A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the latest edition of the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Seb Stafford-Bloor from TIFO Football, and Adrian Clark, the tactical analyst. Okay, let's start with the obvious. Liverpool will still win the Premier League. Don't read anything into the neutered version of the Merseyside derby. Of all the games since the restart, I hated it. Stripped of passion, it became a bloodless, soulless exercise. I'm tempted to look forward to next season, and maybe Chelsea. They've got a five-point cushion in fourth place at the moment, and obviously play Manchester City later in the week. But there's a sense of a club refocused and in the process of being regenerated. Said, is the Empire ready to strike back? <laughs> They're looking good, got to say. Yeah, it's, if I were a Chelsea fan, I'd be I'd be pretty excited about the future. They've made a statement, haven't they, by by flexing their muscles in the, in the transfer market by bringing in Timo Vernon and before that, Hakim Ziyech, very exciting player for, from Dutch football. So, two signings to get the the juices flowing. The kind of football that that supporters want to see. A lot of young players again. That's a popular policy, isn't it? So, so no, I, I do feel that that Chelsea are in a, a very good position ahead of next season. The one area that that definitely needs upgrading is is in defence. I still feel that at the real highest level, Chelsea have a big shortcomings at centre half and also at left back when they're when they're not able to to boss proceedings. Alonso is their best attacking left back, but he's not he's not a great defender. So. So no, there are issues in, in defence to remedy, but they, they're looking good. And yeah, I think their recruitment policy is, is pretty sound. And, and Petr Cech, I think, probably deserves a bit of credit. I was, I was looking, looking at, at how they recruited Werner and Zayic. And, and, and Petr Cech, by all accounts, was very prominent in the discussions. And doesn't it help having someone of a legendary football background in a position like that, where it's impressive. It's as simple as that. It just feels better for, for a potential signing or, or his agent to have a discussion with Petr Cech rather than a technical director that, that, that you know, never had a playing career. It, it just, it can be a game changer. And I think when you couple up Cech and Lampard and you get them both on a Zoom call or a Skype call or in a hotel or however they do these do these things, You've got Czech and Lampard selling you the vision, selling you the club. If you're a player, 
it's hard to say no to that. So um, I think Chelsea are doing a lot of things right at the minute. Well, that certainly happened, didn't it, with the uh, Timo Werner signing? And, you know, obviously there's a lot of noises off Seb, aren't there? You know, Kai Havertz has been mentioned, Ben Chilwell, because Leicester, when the price is right, will sell. And obviously you've got the homegrown talent backing all this up. Mason Mount, I thought, is, is really growing into his role. Ruben Loftus-Cheek, that was one of the great benefits of the, of the win against uh, Villa. And beyond all that, you've got Roman Abramovich, who has the wealth, even in these straightened times. Do you think he senses his chance to actually reassert the club? does seem like it, doesn't it, Mike? It's an aggressive Chelsea that we haven't seen for quite a long time. They've spent money in the past. They, they, they spend money during every transfer window. But I think the difference now is the type of shelf they're shopping on, you know, the type of store they're shopping in even, because this is not one of those kind of Danny Drinkwater, Ross Barkley windows. This is taking players from the top level of European football. If, if it is deliberate, it's a very smart move because, you know, Chelsea, Chelsea obviously behaved impeccably actually through the lockdown in terms of their social responsibilities and how well they communicated. You know, whereas if, if some clubs came out now and spent a lot of money, I think they would rightly be facing a few questions, including my own football club, sadly. But Chelsea, you know, this is potentially a time to, to sort of to build some momentum at a time when a lot of other clubs will just take stock. A lot of other, other clubs will look inward on their squads and think, where is my unrealized potential? Where are my players that haven't potentially had enough game time to mature into a, uh, you know, in, into a credible first teamer? Whereas Chelsea have looked outward and said, right, where are our deficiencies? And left back aside, because I completely agree with Aid there, that, that needs an upgrade. And, you know, if Chilwell's uh, available, then that would be a nice option. They've noticed their deficiencies. They've 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 addressed them quickly, and they've also, you know, because one of the one of the oddities of this season, Mike, is going to be when we go between seasons, we're probably going to have a break of about two and a half three weeks. And first of all, that's not enough time to do considered transfer business, and it's certainly not enough time to integrate a new player into a first team or even a squad. You're not going to get the luxury of like a month long tour in Asia or America or anywhere like that. So. They've, they've not only identified the right talent, they've got it done really early as well, which is super impressive given the circumstances. Yeah, and I suppose conversely, it, you know, there has been some talk about outgoings. Pedro, it, it seems, is determined to get to Roma as soon as possible. And although Frank Lampard has denied this, there, there have been persistent murmurs about allowing N'Golo Kante to leave, which frankly strikes me as daft. Do you think, Aid, that he's been misused? Because we saw a game against Villa, how effective he is. We did. It was another reminder of how good he is in that, that deep-lying, defend, more defensive role. But but he is a, he's a very good distributor as well. He keeps it simple, doesn't he? He moves the ball, keeps things ticking over. He can do what Jorginho can do, in my opinion. I think Jorginho is actually expendable really as you know he's a good player I, I, I like a lot of what he does penalties a different class aren't they with a little skip but but if if you're looking to the future I think Conte and, and Billy Gilmore can more than cover those those that position so so yeah I, I wouldn't be looking to definitely not looking to move him on I mean N'Golo himself it strikes me as someone that might might want to keep moving we saw that at Leicester he was he's eager to get out go to Chelsea and, and maybe he wants to, he sees his future somewhere else. I'm sure a lot of the, the global giants would, would, would be interested in N'Golo Conte, but, but he's also not silly, is he? And and we've just been talking about how bright we think the future might be for, 
for Chelsea with this this fresh generation. And and I would imagine he there'll be a temptation to be a part of that. But yeah, he might want to to know one way or the other if if he's going to be used in his best position. Because for me, he's he's in the top two or three in the in the world in that role as a box to box midfielder. I think he's a, he's perfectly effective and certainly up there in the top ten Premier League box to box midfielders. But it's not his forte. So yes, in answer to your question, in a long-winded way, I think he's been misused to accommodate Jorginho. But there you go. Yeah. Do you think, Seb, you know, we'll learn a little bit more about Chelsea on Thursday night when they've got Manchester City. And, you know, as I mentioned in the intro, they've got a five-point cushion over Manchester United and Wolves. Do you expect them to to protect that? I do now. I mean, I um, I think I'm I'm being instructed by their recovery against Villa. I think that was very, very impressive. They actually dominated that first half, were unlucky to go in behind. And then quickly they turned on the power and the cohesion and overwhelmed Villa. I think we're all reading a little bit too much probably into these first games, but that's natural. It's all we've got. But that just sort of told me that the attitude is right. The focus is right. Preparation has been as good as it can be. And I mean, I, I depth is I good like, as well, isn't it, Seb? The depth is good. You know, you had you don't have players. Be interesting. It was interesting to see Pulisic come on. You know, having had this kind of stop-start beginning to his Chelsea career and immediately make a difference. Now, I compare that, for instance, to how ineffective Jose Mourinho's subs were for Spurs, the issues in the Man United defence. I think it's been of all the teams competing for that kind of that fourth Champions League spot. I think it's been you know the most impressive. Wolves, I still don't know about because West Ham are West Ham are nothing really to a team like Wolves. You can just walk over them, but Chelsea, yeah, pretty impressive. It just seems healthy, Mike. I, I think the adaption to the to the knowledge that you know Werner's coming in, Ziyech is coming in. You've seen players like Mount raise their performance immediately, and I think that's really encouraging. I speak it speaks very highly of the culture at Chelsea more than anything else. Yeah, I think you've got to praise Frank Lampard for uh, helping to sustain it or even maybe, you know, create a new culture. You know, we mentioned Liverpool in the intro. They've got Crystal Palace next on Wednesday. Before looking at the derby, but also the implications of uh, some of the performances in, in that game, just want to dwell for a second, Aidy, if I may, about Roy Hodgson's return to Anfield. Does this Palace team represent the restoration of his reputation after disappointments at Liverpool and England. When you think about it, with that squad, four straight wins, ninth, you know, Europe is even a possibility. That that's a heck of an achievement, isn't it? It is. And yeah, well look, let's see where they finish up. There's still still plenty of time for them to not fall away, I guess, from from that kind of contention. But no, really impressed with Palace again this season. Restoration, yeah, I think it has because in, in this country, he he was tarnished by by the Iceland debacle, wasn't he? And his reaction to it, and he has proved all over again what a, what a smart coach he is. He is a very good organizer. He, he's he's perfect for a team like Crystal Palace. Actually, I I don't think he's the guy to manage a whole bunch of flair players. I think he's he's the kind of manager that thrives in an underdog environment where you have to be solid. And and he's created that solid defensive base. We, we'll talk about Arsenal later on, I'm sure. But what Arsenal lack is reliability at the back, concentration and players that, that hate conceding goals. And 
and Palace have, have got those. They've, they've, they're really, really tight as a unit. And, and up front, I have to say that the acquisition of Jordan Ayew has, has been a big hit. He's getting a tune out of Christian Benteke now. He's, he's managed to, to re-motivate, regenerate him to some degree. And when you put those two alongside Zahar, that's, that's, that's a pretty decent unit. And behind them, you've got a very strong, energetic, powerful central midfield. So they're a team. Palace, they are absolutely a solid team that deserve their place in inside the middle of the Premier League. And and a lot of that is down to Hodgson. Mm. If you look at Liverpool, Seb, I was reading a piece with Virgil van Dijk before the game on Sunday where he was saying, look, Liverpool can get better. How? What comes to mind immediately is Naby Keita. He has. I counted up. I, I, I somehow wrote two thousand words on this on this game. <laughs> I have to say, uh, hope, that, hope they hope your medal's in the post for that. That's yeah, amazing. me too. Me too. Like, uh, and and my lack of sleep. Hope that's in the post as well. Um, <laughs> I um I counted up his his injuries since he moved to Liverpool. He's had eight different muscular injuries, seven muscular injuries actually, and one dead leg since he um he joined in twenty eighteen. And that kind of adds to this this sense that there is obviously a player there, but just someone who hasn't quite been integrated as Jürgen Klopp might like. Now I look at Keita and I think he has a different set of attributes and a different set of traits to everybody else in that midfield. Like in terms of his ability to drive with the ball at his feet, beat players, play in tight spaces intricately. He's got lovely close control. He, he can finish from close range and from distance if the opportunity presents itself. So I look at him and think if you can keep him fit and if you can define a proper long-term role for him, then you can sort of change the personality of that midfield. And that's kind of, that's the means by which you can possibly change the way Liverpool attack and, you know, um, broaden the sort of questions they're, they're, they're capable of asking. Everything else, I'd be really loath to touch or change. Like the fullback dynamic, you don't want to interfere with. They really missed um, Robertson, didn't they? I think they missed the existence of the tandem. They missed Robertson as an individual, but they they when when both of those players are there, they have this kind of harmonious dynamic whereby any player in any position can switch the point of attack at any moment and it works so well that as an, as a as a defending team, it's really difficult to see it coming. How many times when you watch Liverpool do you do you see do you see it look as if they have not only an extra man, but as if, you know, when they switch the ball to the flanks, they have these little mismatches which just appear from nowhere, which other teams just cannot cope with. And when you interfere with, when you take one of those fullbacks away and you disrupt the partnership, that utility goes and they look so much more predictable as a result. It's, it's really interesting. I mean, actually, it's kind of a, a study of how important fullbacks have become in the modern game, but also sort of how effective they are when they're, they use that well. But Cater's the one for me, Mike. I, 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 I really want to see more of him, but I want to see what Liverpool can be as a result of his evolution at the club, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah it certainly does. I mean, from your perspective, Aid, mm. mm. how much of a worry is Mo Salah at the moment? Because it's obvious that that front three, when it's a two plus one, doesn't have the same impact. Mm. Yeah, no, they, they do rely on, on the three of them, don't they, together? And when one is missing, and it's not just Salah, if, if, if Firmino's missing, sometimes it, it doesn't click as well. It, yeah, it it doesn't fall apart, but you just, they just seem to lose lose their mojo a little bit, don't they? Yeah, I think I think that is the next challenge because they might not be there forever, as we've seen with with a lot of teams on on since Project Restart began. Players are going down for fun, aren't they? Injured, 
and there's there's there's, there's a good chance that they might they might lose Mane, Salah, Firmino for the rest of the season and into next season potentially. So they need to have the right players to to slip in and and Minamino as as talented as he is, as, you know, he's lively, he's, he's, a, he's a good technical player. Not quite up to well, he's, he's not up to their level at the moment, and they were imbalanced, weren't they? With that, without him, I always feel as well that that as as excellent as Firmino is, having a different option, uh, maybe a more traditional centre forward available that that can still chip in with goals and and offer the kind of link play that Salah and, and Mane. Require. I still think that is a is a hole in their squad. So, so for me, if 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 they're to do one piece of business, I would I would I would suggest they should get a, a centre forward that's of a slightly different, not a target man centre. You know who they should get, and <laughs> we'll probably get to him later. Someone like Raúl Jiménez, a, a target man that can can offer a threat in behind, something a little bit different to Firmino, and and be really physical inside the box, but also someone that can drop in like he does. And link play comfortably. I think Raúl Jiménez would be would be among my list of targets if if I was Klopp. But um, but yeah, well, let, we'll, let, we'll see on that let, one. Let's guarantee a volley for some uh, Wolves fans because <laughs> I I actually think I'd love to see Adama Traore in that team. Well, uh, yeah, he he would be the ideal fill in, wouldn't he, for for Salah or, or Mane? But I mean, Traore is just. Irving, isn't he? I mean, it's just. <laughs> I mean, it was. It was almost embarrassing. Like what what we saw when he came on against West Ham. He was. He was so much better than the defenders that he was up against. He he could, he could literally do whatever he wanted to do. It was. He was a joy to watch in that in that cameo it, sub appearance. It was like watching a, a man play against under fourteen. <laughs> it was. Like, yeah, yeah, right, he, right. He, 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 delight is the right word as, as well. Aid. He is. Um, He's just a joy at the moment, the way he's he's evolved and the kind of, I mean, at his best, how easy he makes the game, how easy it makes it, it look to just to go past Premier League level defenders. It's mm. incredible. Mm. Yeah. Well, he's almost, against the tiring team especially, he's, he's pretty much unplayable, isn't he? And I, I also think his development has to be a testament to, to Nuno's coaching ability, doesn't it? It does. Also a testament to Tony Pulis's coaching ability because... Pulis is probably the one first, the first one to recognise that Troy had been mismanaged prior prior to his arrival at Middlesbrough, and that he kind of been treated as a blunt instrument. But yeah, I mean, since he arrived at Wolves, the evolution has been amazing. I mean, if you think back to his original transfer, there were people, myself included, who thought, yeah, an eighteen, ninety million—that's probably a little bit too much for him. And now, can you imagine what he would uh, he would cost on the open market? If you if you say like that, he'd he'd be suited to Liverpool, Mike. Can you imagine how much they'd have to come up with to take him away from Wolves? It'd be sixty seventy. What what I love what I love about the way Nuno has guided him is is the discipline to the game and, and keeping things simple. Clearly, they've worked really hard on his decision making and end product inside the final third. It, it just stands out that he's he's a more intelligent footballer now than he was previously. So I think Nuno deserves a lot of credit for that. But also, what Nuno hasn't done that some managers might fall into the trap of doing is inflate Traore, inflate his ego, because he's been so brilliant. Yet we haven't heard a peep, really, out of Nuno. He hasn't bigged him up. He hasn't said... He has, he's kept his feet firmly on the ground and, and limited the praise that he said publicly about him and I think that's smart and, and, and let's he's also backed that up with actions 
he doesn't always pick Adama Traore because he puts the team first and he, he, he sees him often as someone that can change the dynamic of a game in the, in the second half. And he won't, even if, he, if he's not 100% fit, he won't automatically play him like some managers would when you've got a player as devastating as Traore. So I think his handling of him has been deeply impressive. You know what's also really interesting, guys, is that with that kind of player, I think some managers would have said, right, how can we simplify your role? So you, you have an, an, an Adama Traore type and you say you're going to be you're going to be limited to playing right on the touchline. You beat your fullback and you put in a cross. Whereas actually at Wolves, <clears throat> the opposite has happened. He's encouraged him in field, which is really, and he's, he's thrived as a result. He's, his play in the middle third of the pitch, that second goal on, um, on Saturday is a perfect example. You wouldn't have found him in that area previously. Mm. But also, um, you know, the scorer of that goal, a spectacular goal, Pedro Neto, you know, here's someone who's only 20, probably a, another product of the of the Mendes pipeline, if you like. Wolves have got a real team developing and, you know, they're almost too good for their own good at the moment because simply, you know, people are going to look at this team and think, well, I'll have him or I might even have him or even him. And, and you've, got, you've got really good players who are almost going unnoticed. Someone like uh, Willie Bolly at the back, I th- you know, he looks a terrific defender. <laughs> yeah, I think Willie Bolly is is outstanding. He's, he's definitely one of the most underappreciated defenders or, or players, really, in the in the Premier League. He would enhance, I think, most of the so called big six and Leicester. If you're going to chuck them into the mix, he would he would enhance all of them. I think he's good enough to to get into their. They're starting 11s. So, you know, look at Arsenal and Spurs in particular, and he, he, he would walk into their teams. But look, Wolves might be in the Champions League next year. You know, if City's, if City's European ban is upheld for, for one year at least, I, I, I think they've got a real, real good shot of, of finishing fifth this season, Wolves. And, and if that happens, then, then that team will surely, surely stay together. You're, you're right about Neto as well. I think he's a, he's a really promising, exciting young player that we don't know a lot about, but I think we're about to find out a lot more about him. Because that, that was a great goal. And what what impressed me about Wolves in this game was their patience because West Ham's tactics were, were so blatant in terms of we're going to be incredibly deep and we are not... Because we're a bit slow anyway. We're, gonna, <laughs> we're not going to expose ourselves here and let you run right on the counter. And they didn't panic, Wolves, and they eventually just ground them down with a bit of quality mixed up their formation and 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 personnel and 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 in the end that a couple of moments of real real quality made the difference and and I think that will give them confidence moving forwards wolves because it wasn't just about being on the counter here they they had possession and they what we saw with the goal particularly the Doherty cross for, for Neto was when teams sit 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 deep and we, and we have to find a way to open them up we, we do have the quality and uh, we'll just put balls in the box and we, we trust our, our forwards to, to finish them. And that's what we saw actually with both the goals, didn't we? With Jimenez and, um, and Neto. So yeah, really, really, really good team, Wolves. But look, as, as Seb rightly pointed out, they didn't beat a great deal did they, in, in West Ham. Mm. Do you think, you know, let's look at Manchester United, Seb, if we could, who are obviously the natural rivals for fourth or fifth specifically the impact of Bruno Fernandes, he seems to be the missing link. Is that fair? Yeah, it's just provided them with a completely different layer of creativity. 
that ball into I think it was Anthony Martial where Eric Dyer made the, the last ditch block. I mean, what it's lovely disguise on that pass. A to play it and to see the option. B to hide it from all the players around the ball and just you know I mean I went the wrong way and I was sitting at home <laughs> watching on TV. Um, I think you know like I, I'd want to mention Paul Pogba as well. Mm-hmm. I, that I tell you what, A, a you've played. Mm-hmm. That that cut half volley pass. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, so so you come yeah. back after what seven months out. Yeah. It's a wet pitch, weird environment, team that's kind of getting used to each other, a lot of new faces, and that's the pass you play within ten minutes oh, of coming out. It's an amazing just, bit of technique. Yeah, great technique and also confidence because you can yeah. you can look an absolute fool if you splice that Ab- one. <laughs> that's what I'm thinking because if you're if you're coming back, then I think most players' instinct would be just to lay that off mm. and to you know to to fluff up the uh, the, the accuracy percentages. Uh, but yeah. it's just uh, that is that is. Um, not to be trite, but that's football. Yeah, well, <laughs> that, we've, we've all grown so football, sick. But... We've all grown so sick of Pogba headlines on the back pages, haven't we? That you sometimes forget what what a good footballer he is, and his long range passing is great. His twinkle toes in tight areas is 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 among the best around. So, yeah, he he showed his class, and it is exciting the the prospect of him and Fernandez playing together. But but it would it would take a McTominay or Fred out of the team, and against the very best teams that. That might be a problem because, yeah, you, you lose a bit of a bit of that defensive now. There, I actually thought McTominay was really good. It was, yeah, me too. Yeah, I thought he he stood out to me as as being a player that's developed and grown. And, and McTominay right now is 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 Manchester United's sort of defensive linchpin in there. And and Fred has been playing well. Nothing wrong with Fred's form, but but out of the two. I think, well, you saw, didn't you, with the substitution, I think McTominay is, is numero uno at the minute. Mm-hmm. Do you think they might be a natural goal scorer short? Oh, Manchester United, a natural mm. goal scorer short. Oh, it, possibly. I mean, Daniel James, you don't fancy to, to score a hatful, do you? Mar- Martial is a good finisher. I think Rashford is, a, is an excellent finisher. Are they a Harry Kane short? Is that is that where you're leading on yep. this? I mean, <laughs> I mean there, there is a reason. Me. There is a reason, isn't there, why why United have, have have been so interested in someone like like Harry Kane? Yeah, he he would be the icing on the cake of of that potential forward line, wouldn't he? But but look for for now, I think Manchester United are blessed with enough attacking firepower. I, I don't see it being being a big problem. But but yeah, perhaps as Roy Keane pointed out uh, in his in his analysis, maybe they they might be looking at changing the keeper. And I did talk about De Gea, didn't I? And I said he'll be a value. He'll be a really important player for United because when he's when he's all at his best, he earns them wins when they draw. And when he's not at his best, and he hasn't been at his best for a long time, David De Gea, that's when United drop points. And look, but for but for that error, and it was an error. They would have won that game, and and would be you know that would have been a terrific victory. Yeah, I suppose you know Sheffield United, who are actually their next opponents, they they look to have run out of a bit of a momentum. But Dean Henderson has really impressed me with them, and you know even he's got he must have titanium wrists. You know he's got such strong hands, isn't he? I I think he's a fantastic goalkeeper, and I can see him becoming United's number one sooner rather than later. I think the only thing that's going to be a problem there, Mike, is the size of David De Gea's contract. Mm. Um, because you cannot have a player that's earning that kind of money sitting on the bench. It just doesn't, it just doesn't work. Welcome so, to modern football. 
Well, mo- <laughs> well, absolutely. I mean, I I just wonder also. Um, I mean, obviously, a couple of years ago there was a substantial market for for David de Gea. He could probably have had his pick of clubs, but you look around. Real Madrid are fully stocked. Barcelona, obviously, um, are not going to be moving on from Testagen, nor should they. Newbell has gone to uh, Bayern Munich to back up Manuel Neuer or replace him, one of the two. Wojciech Szczesny is doing good things at Juventus. I don't see many landing spots for David De Gea. So it's kind of, I, I don't know what United do with Dean Henderson because is he going to, given the season he's had, and actually he has a very good shot of making the team of the season, I would say, does he accept another loan or does he say, I, I want to move, I want to get on my career, I want some permanence. And I, I think he's entitled to make that demand. So um, there's, it's difficult. I wouldn't like to have to make that decision. Yeah, um, it's a good point. Because, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's difficult because I'd, I'd almost be tempted to, you know, if you're going to sell De Gea, I think you have to give him more time to reestablish himself. At the moment, you're not paying a lot of money for that goalkeeper in his form because he looks he looks fragile and wounded. And actually, you know, I, I think this stretch of form goes all the way back to the 2018 World Cup. Yeah. So it's not just six weeks or something. It's uh, it's quite substantial. I agree. Uh, yeah, he, yeah, he, he's been making... Too many mistakes since. I, I just wonder, but Chelsea—they're not sure, are they, about Kepa? We, we've spoken about their ambition. Hey, nor should they be. Aid. Yeah. He is—he needs replacement. Yeah, well, could it's, Henderson uh... or David Gea be a Chelsea goalkeeper sometime soon? You know, the, Manchester United—that they can't have both they, because both have to have to be number ones somewhere. Mm, agree with that. We're starting to get a, a feel for what I suppose. You know, the new cliche, which is the new normal. I think what's become very clear, even on, you know, we've only had one round of fixtures, that some games just need an atmosphere. And I'm thinking of the Spurs-Man United game and obviously the Mersey derby. You know, watching it, I gave artificial crowd noise a chance, but I've just had to bin it because it's such an inauthentic distraction to me. And it's and it sort of matches the the football, which is pretty neutered and and muted what about you i'm conflicted really i watch i've I mixed it up i, I watched spurs man united authentically so i could hear you know hear the players and whatnot i just felt and it didn't you, you find it, out who the leaders are don't you you do, you do. and uh, hugo Lloris <laughs> actually was really more vocal than i'd realized in terms of his screaming and shouting particularly at corners and when balls were being played into the box that was that was interesting that was educational <sighs> Look, the crowd noise is fake. You all know it's fake, but it, it, for me, it still makes it just a little bit more more palatable. I, I for, for one reason or not, I've been working on the Arsenal games and I've had to co-commentate in pure silence just for technical reasons. So, so when, when you have to co-commentate in pure silence, it, any kind of crowd noise, fake or otherwise, is, is welcome, let me tell you, because it's, it's really hard to, to get to, to, to not to be detached from a game when, when you've got nothing in your ears. So, no, I'm still conflicted. I haven't made my mind up yet. But if you've got it on, you've just got to accept that it's fake and, and, and yeah, ignore it, I guess, to some degree. It just stops it feeling like a training game for me, and that's the reason why I'm. I still would probably choose it. Yeah, but I, you know, it's funny. You do miss the the sort of emotional intensity that a crowd brings, don't you? Because you know, I th- I thought watching the uh, you know the BT Sport game, the, the Watford Leicester game, you imagine that ground would have been in absolute ferment, wouldn't it? At the end, because you know you had that great Chilwell goal, 
Then you had you know, a central defender equalising in the ninety third <laughs> minute. Oh, you know the place goals. would have gone nuts. Yeah, great goals, and and you know Craig D- Dawson, you know he looked nonplussed himself, didn't he? To be honest, but you know the the place would have gone absolutely nuts, and I'm I do miss that. I have to say, am I am I just being a you know stick in the mud purist, Seb? No, my I agree with you. It's you know this is actually going to get harder as time goes on because at the moment these games have a consequence. You know, people are, are actually playing to avoid relegation or to qualify for Europe. When we get into the dog days of middle mid July and some of these teams have nothing to play for, you know, you're gonna miss it a whole lot more because it's one of those compensations at the end of a season when, you know, if you if you're if you're not invested in the outcome of the game itself, then you can kind of take solace in the atmosphere and the environment and, you know, all the all the sort of the, the dynamics that come with that. But it's you know, you guys talking about um artificial noise i've noticed variations between the channels now i'm not just saying this because we're on bt programming but what was the guy doing the 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 most side derby doing like there's a there's a point in the second half it probably fallen Rish- asleep like the rest of <laughs> it. Like, there was a point in the second half where richarlison position i think it was from about 30 yards out puts a shot into orbit and he's he's hit. I don't know if this is exactly how it works, but he's hit the goal button, and the crowd starts cheering as if, like, you know, you know, you know the noise that, that uh, a crowd makes um, just before a goalkeeper claws one out of his top corner. Yeah, yeah. He pressed that button, yeah. and it's just like this is it's heading towards the moon. It's going to land in Anfield. <laughs> this shot, and it, it, I mean, it's just fix up your game, Sky. Yeah, you're um, at the because... mercy of your broadcast engineers, aren't you? Here, it pressing the right buttons. I mean, I, I watch a lot of the NRL and I know rugby's a simpler game to to pipe noise into because it's, it's territorial and a little bit more predictable. But the artificial noise there is excellent. And it is exactly as AIDS describes it. It's a compensation. It helps you avoid that kind of training ground aesthetic that we all, we're all trying to pretend isn't there. I don't know. It's, it's hard. I mean, it, we said before we started recording that like a lot of the derby games are quite frantic and fractious. And when there's no atmosphere and when there's no noise in the stadium, you know, you, you're just looking at bad football, really, aren't you? You know, it's, it's not an occasion and it's not a spectacle. It's just it's just really it's it's a football cranked up to 11 and in, in a really bad yeah. way. I, I've been realistic. Not every game. There's been some dog games like like the Merseyside derby. I don't, like I say, I worked on the Brighton Arsenal game and it was if the crowd had been in there, I think they would have really enjoyed it. It was quite dramatic. There were, there were, the tempo was decent. I've been quite impressed not massively but quite impressed with the attitudes of the players and how they've how they've coped with it i think it's weirder for us really at the moment as as viewers but i just feel that we spoke when this when when the pandemic started i said i think we we all said we fear that we're going to realize how how vital fans are what i hope will come of this is that we can find a way to get some supporters into into grounds in September, maybe for the start of next season, particularly if the social distancing is eased to some degree, I do think there'll be a, a real clamour for for clubs to find a way to get supporters in to generate an atmosphere because yeah, football is just not just not the same. Mm. Is there anything else? Any other trends that you've spotted, Seb? You know, one thing that that struck me was you know Dean Smith was saying after the Villa game yesterday that. You know, Chelsea or teams like Chelsea almost have an inherent advantage because they can, you know, because the depth of their squad is such that their five subs are going to be better than his five subs, basically. And therefore, that can influence matches, especially now. It's sort of the last quarter of a game. 
you're getting quite a few goals scored then, aren't you? And and you know games are being decided at that time, and they're being increasingly decided by the depth of the bench rather than anything else. Yeah, I, that's a really good point, actually, Mike, because um, as a manager, if you go into, let's say, the 60th minute and you're chasing the game, you can be really aggressive with your substitutions. You could put on three attacking players and then, you know, in an ordinary situation, you'd have to kind of couch a little bit and sort of defer to security. But because you've got an extra two, you can almost undo your own decision as and when the nature of the game changes. And I think some, I think the most successful teams, I mean, obviously score depth is, is, is really important and the quality of players matters more than anything else. But I think this remaining eight game period is going to reward managers who grasp this and who use that and exploit it to the fullest degree. Because I, um, for instance, if you were, I mean, if you were being hypercritical of Jose Mourinho on Friday night, you'd say you dallied with your substitutions, which is a strange thing to say about Mourinho, but you didn't. You didn't bolster your midfield in a way that you could do with, you know, four other substitutions to spare. So that was really interesting. And I, I think, you know, the, the sort of the more tactically minded and the more kind of mentally agile managers are going to get a lot of currency out of this. Yeah. You know, I mentioned Villa there, Aid. You know, if we look at the relegation fight, will Villa score enough goals to stay up? That's what struck me. And they needed to get something out of that Chelsea game, probably. And they play Newcastle on Wednesday night, and that seems pivotal now, doesn't it? Yeah, well, it's going to be a very, very different type of match. I think it's easy to to sort of think that when when you see Chelsea having seventy four percent of possession, I think a lot of teams might might have looked like they were struggling to score score goals against that type of opponent. Grealish will come to the fore in matches where Villa have a more even share of possession. On that Chelsea game, by the way, brilliant tactics from Lampard in, in, in exploiting that right-hand side, basically pushing Aspilicueta on, saying, OK, Grealish, what do you want to do? Are you going to cheat or are you going to come with me? And unfortunately, Jack didn't always come with him and, and, and Aspilicueta ended up being being the match winner for Chelsea. So, so that was really smart of Lampard, I thought. Will Villa score enough goals? I do think they put good balls into the box. We saw that with with their goal. El Ghazi is a good deliverer. So is Jack Grealish. John McGinn has got a good left foot. and They can get Samata going. He's a powerful player in the air. Keenan Davis has got potential. I don't... I quite like Keenan Davis. Yeah, I, I like he's him. A well. He's a real unit. He's a real he? unit, he, but but he, technically a good player too. Yeah. Like he's got some really nice touches. He has, he has, but but there's nothing proven about him, is there, at this no, level? No. So, so it's a gamble when you're in the middle of a relegation battle. It's who who do you pick? Do you pick the promising kid that that that, that might turn out to be a worldie, or or do you go with someone that you spent big money on for a reason? So, no, I, I think Villa, yeah, they can score enough goals. It's yeah, I I, I still feel that they've got a fighting chance of survival. I really do because they have got Jack Grealish and. And McGinn, who who can who can make the difference? By contrast, Seb, Norwich sadly look doomed, don't they? Very very strangely submissive performance on their first game back, wasn't it? Yeah, I was talking to a friend of mine <clears throat> during the game on WhatsApp, and he's a from a family of Norwich fans, and um, he he kind of predicted it. He said, "Oh, you know, there's a collapse coming. <clears throat> I, I can't get through one of these podcasts without losing my voice." <laughs> kind of just just every time. I said at half time to him that they kept the ball quite nicely. They perhaps miss a bit of presence at the top of the pitch, but there's there's something encouraging about kind of the, the phase of their play. And he's like, no, no, you know, because there's, there's just it seems to be like a fundamental weakness and a lack of 
a lack of something which I can't even define because it was it was almost a surrender. And you just thought this relegation this relegation fight is close enough for you know a couple of wins, and all of a sudden the picture completely changes. I mean, look how look how it might have looked had had Villa held on to their lead at half time on mm. Sunday. They'd been out of the relegation mm. spots. They'd been up to sixteenth, and it's almost as if Norwich. Yeah, I, I I don't believe that they're not good enough, Mike, because I see some of these players, and yeah, there are a few deficiencies in the squad. But I I look at someone like Todd Cantwell or Max Ahrens. I think you're really good players. You can make a difference in some of these games, mm. and they were turned over so easily by, with no disrespect intended, a team like Southampton. Really, mm. I mean, that just doesn't naive, weren't they? I mean, I just thought I, tactical it was naivety. Yeah. I, I know soft is a media term mm. rather than a player's term, but that's how it looked. Some of those goals were awfully soft. They didn't look like a team that kind of wanted to, you know, go out swinging a few punches. It was um, it was one of the strangest games I've seen since the restart, yeah. actually. I just think that they were... Talk about having a soft centre. I mean, Southampton could stride down the middle whenever the play broke down at absolute will. So if, if that happens once or twice surely a manager has to respond to that and say that doesn't happen again and and make some adjustments either in terms of the personnel in central midfield or to, to change the shape or to get messages there in terms of we're too flimsy down the spine and the fit pitch. It didn't happen. And yeah, I, I just feel that they're a bit too idealist really in terms of their philosophy, Daniel Farker and Norwich, and, and it will cost them because they're just not good enough at the back to have a framework ahead of them that is that is flimsy. Do you think that if they had the time their time again, they might invest in someone who, for no better of a description, kicked people a little bit? <laughs> I think there's a there's there's a few too many artisans in that first eleven. There's a few too many nice players who, you know, are, are very pretty to watch, but I, there, there isn't quite enough menace to them. In the same way that someone like, you know, Watford, uh, Watford has some good players as well. But also, you know, Watford will fight you if you want them to. And I don't get that same feeling for Norwich. And I, I know it's a little bit of an anachronism, but I feel that's still quite an important quality in, in relegation football. <laughs> it's just they're those just, uh, nice Stanglians, isn't it? That's where you're going with this, isn't it? I suppose another, another gauge of it, um, and, and I think you touched on it, Seb, where if you look at that team and, you know, when the autopsy is is performed you know in a few weeks time players will be taken out of that squad you know there'll be four or five players who look natural Premier League players probably in better Premier League teams whereas Bournemouth you maybe take a couple of players out David Brooks King perhaps Aki you know there, there are a few there but I thought again Bournemouth were so submissive at the weekend They've got Wolves next, and I shudder to think what they'll do to that defence. Eight points out of 39, that's relegation form in anyone's language, isn't it? Big time, big time. It's a scary time as well because I, um, you know, 82% of that revenue is come does come from Premier League broadcasting contracts. I just, I also don't understand it, Mike. I, I kind of, I thought I, I thought we'd get a little bit of a retaliation from Bournemouth. Having David Brooks back is, is is hugely important. It should have been a big lift to that entire attacking unit, which has been so barren throughout the season. I think they've only scored twenty eight goals, something like that. It's 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 won a game basically, or less than now because they didn't score against Palace. I was shocked by how easily they were dismantled. And again, it, it's almost like the Norwich criticism, Mike. You didn't see some of the kind of. You know some of the, the sort of the, the the intangibles that you look for in a team that's willing to fight for its future. 
it looked like, uh, again, another surrender. They were handily beaten. It was far too easy. Yeah, and I suppose the, the other thing that struck me was looking at Eddie Howe on the touchline. He had that thousand-yard stare, didn't he? And it was like, wow, you know, he's obviously, because he's a, a very diligent, intelligent, you know, a very, very good guy to talk football with. So he's obviously been churning around this issue on a 24-7 basis for, for probably too long. He doesn't look... He looks lost. Yeah, I, I can understand why why you would say that. He's in a pickle, clearly. Yeah, that 1,000 yards there is becoming commonplace, really, with, with Eddie. He, he knows his football. He knows his football. He's a very good coach. Like you say, he's probably working harder now than, than he ever has. But but maybe sometimes when you've been there a while, you can't see the wood for the trees. I know it's an old cliche, but 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 you can't see the big picture clearly. Maybe what Eddie needs to do, if he's going to stay there, is, is bring in someone new into his backroom team just to, to have fresh eyes on it because it feels like they've gone very stale. When I think of, of Bournemouth at their best, it's, it's when they're... They're breaking at pace, slipping those early balls down the channels for for Josh King, for Callum Wilson. And they're just not doing that anymore. And and aside from David Brooks, they don't have any imagination. They don't have any creativity. I think only one team creates fewer chances in open play than Bournemouth. And that's not what Bournemouth were built on under Eddie Howe. So, yeah, confidence, I think, has, has been sapped from the players because of results. And maybe the manager as well is starting to... I think, I don't know if I've got the right answers here. It's, it is worrying times for Bournemouth. It, look, right now, to me, it seems that Norwich are definitely going to go down because of their tactical naivety and, and that Bournemouth, because of their form and confidence, will go down and, and the rest are battling for the final spot. Yeah, so if you say Villa, you know, we, we, we've all already talked about West Ham's you know, basically being pretty insipid. So if you think those four are going to, basically the, the three are going to come from those four, what about Watford? They they look to have the required durability to stay up, don't they? And that's probably an indication of, of how well P- Nigel Pearson has done. Yeah, I think so. No, I think they should have won that game as well. They had a couple of really good chances. You know, save that Chilwell banger. They probably would have got three points eventually. I thought they were the better team. But that, that turnover has been amazing because uh, he, Pearson didn't just inherit a team that wasn't defending well, wasn't attacking in the, with the right ratios. He inherited a dressing room which, within which there's quite a lot of disharmony and quite a few players that didn't actually want to be there. And I don't think we need to name them. I think that was pretty self-evident. And I've been really impressed by the kind of the spirit that's re-emerged since he, since he joined the club. And I like them to get out of it. I think what we've got to look at in this situation is coaching ability. You know, Pearson and Shakespeare there, that's a that's a, an excellent team. Also been through a relegation survival before. Also look at Harmony. And one of the reasons why we we doubt West Ham and why we're kind of disparaging about them is because they don't have that. They have all the quality in the world. They spent an absolute fortune on this squad. And yet it adds it adds up to far less than the sum of its parts because you have these dressing room problems that someone like Nigel Pearson has been able to cure seemingly. So that's the difference. Mm, you you Paid special attention to Brighton aid. They were at Leicester on Tuesday, funny enough. That win over Arsenal had the air of being a decisive win. Is that fair? Well, it's massive for the, for their confidence and uh, it, it could be the difference. Hand on heart and, and taking uh, you know, my, my Arsenal-tinted spectacles off, they were fortunate to win the game. I mean, Arsenal controlled it and had more than enough chances to, to bury them. 
before that turnaround. But but what I'll credit is that they never gave up Brighton. They showed real real spirit in the second half. Graham Potter shook things up. I think he made a good he made a smart change at half time. Took off Aaron Moy, who 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 was a good player, but he was being uh, ineffective because of the the shape of the Arsenal team. So he brought on a Solly March, who who can operate as a as a wing back of sorts when necessary, and and that was good. And and he went two up top at the right time with Connolly and Mopay, and and we saw that pay off in space with the with the winner, and and that winning goal. Uh, what a goal! Yeah, what a goal! What a I goal. mean, that was that was sparkling. Front That's two football. Excellent. That, it, it, football, it's yeah. what you work on those on the training ground yeah. week in, week out, but very rarely do they actually come off. Ball into the centre forward. He dummies it. Second player uh, gets it. Spins. Little flick. It, I mean, it was it was absolutely glorious football, as as poor as Arsenal defended it and as slow as they were <laughs> to react to it. So, so no, it, it could it will lift their morale, no question. But I, I wasn't, wasn't that impressed by Brighton. The one thing that... That frustrated me as, a, as an Arsenal follower, but would encourage me as a Seagulls fan is that they were dirty. They were really, they really <laughs> got their no, they really got their foot in, and they there was nothing meek about Brighton. I mean, Eve Basuma, I think, had seven fouls, and yeah. he didn't, he didn't, he didn't get a yellow as far as I can tell. He got away with murder, but but they, they were putting their foot in, and and that I think is something that that you rightly pointed out is lacking at, at Norwich. So that there was there was fight about the seagulls and and that that would encourage me. Does that differ? You know, let's differentiate between that type of aggression and the perceived aggression in the Morpay instant with Leno, where you know, to me, looking at it, it looked to be a, a football accident. Do you agree with that? I think so. I mean, um, see, I, I don't really see the difference between what happened between Leno and Morpay and. A couple of minutes later, Alexander Lacazette sliding in to block a Matt Ryan clearance and leaving his foot in. The difference is that Matt Ryan didn't get hurt. Also, I mean, I point people towards um, David Priest's analysis, obviously long-time friend of the show and, and all-round good man. David said, uh, and he's obviously a, a professional goalkeeping coach, he said that that's not the way goalkeepers are taught to protect themselves when they're in the air, not the way they're taught to land. I'm not going to go as far as to say that I blame Burn Leno for getting hurt. I just... I. My pay goes into the Arsenal dressing room at halftime or find or seeks out Mikel Arteta and apologises. I don't believe for a second he tried to hurt the goalkeeper. I'm not sure what else he's supposed to do. I mean, everyone's best wishes are with Leno. It's just really unfortunate. Yeah, yeah I, I agree that it was an accident. He definitely didn't mean to hurt him. But what more could he do is, is not, not go for the ball because both hands were on the ball and... It, You've seen Neil Mopé. He's not a big. He's not a big guy. No, he was never but, ever going to win the ball. So what he has to do, and this is a, a lesson for him and for, for other strikers, is to is to just give up on that and just say because it, it wasn't a fifty fifty. He had he had the ball. He was in mid air. He, he was in the process of claiming the ball. Yet he ju- he jumped into him. I, I thought it was reckless, and I'm not saying that that he deserves to be you know slated. To kingdom come for this. It was he did, certainly didn't mean to hurt him, but it was reckless, and I think that that it just goes to show, you know how how easily footballers can get injured. Personally, you know I know Bert, Bert Leno is is a relatively mild character, and you could see his anger when it, when he was being carried off. It, it wasn't because he knew he went to get him. It was because it was the silliest of of token attempts to get the ball. And that token attempt to get the ball 
has led to what I think could be a, a very serious knee injury. So let's not let him off the hook completely. Do you, do you know what it made me think of, Aid? Is um, the incident between Manuel Neuer and Gonzalo Higuain mm. in the 2014 World Cup final. Mm. Now, I, I agree with a lot of what mm. you say, but then I also think there's no way someone like Neil Malpe does that to a Manuel Neuer. If he tries to do that, he gets flattened. And I kind of, I kind of, I'm, 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 I'm kind of more um, inclined to sort of defer to David, uh, David Priest's analysis, just because it, it makes sense to me. Like forwards do this; it's, it's part of the game. It's almost an instinct, it seems. And I think I kind of want my forward going for that goal, for, for that ball. I want the goalkeeper, as with you know, when he's he's trying to claim a cross or a corner or a free kick, I want his life to be as awkward as possible. I don't want him getting hurt, but I want that competitiveness, and I want to see it. And I. I you know, you, you wish Burn Leno well, mm. and you know, I, I hope it's not as serious as it looks. Of course, yeah. I, I, you know, it sounds like in it a is, different but, scenario, yeah. I would agree. I think if it, if it, he has a genuine chance of scoring a goal, or yeah, uh, or, yeah of scoring a goal, it was more Fine of a fifty-fifty. I, I think there, the ball was running towards the edge of the box. The keeper's clearly going to get the ball. It was an unnecessary challenge, if you if you want to call it that. It was completely unnecessary. The whole he had every right to go for that argument doesn't hold sway in this instance, although I agree with it in general that strikers should 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 be able to go in for 50-50s with keepers. Here, there was... I just didn't see why what there was to gain, but there you go. Okay, well, let's try and pull things together now, and I hope you don't mind me imposing on you for this one, Aid. For your thought for the day, could you just give us your thoughts about Arsenal and the state of Arsenal at the moment? By common consent, they've had a terrible restart you know there are all sorts of personality issues when doozy is one case in point looks like he's going to get probably a three-match ban where are arsenal going well yeah everything that could have gone wrong is going wrong you know major injuries to three key players in the part of the pitch you don't want injuries you know leno jacker and mary you've probably got your you've got your best keeper your best center half on form and your yeah your best central midfielder your most reliable central midfielder all injured so so that's a blow where are arsenal it i think the last two matches prove that you if you don't have a solid defensive platform you aren't going to succeed and and they just keep losing concentration i don't believe it's coaching i believe it's a personnel issue and that the personnel the defensive, the the players in central midfield and it, at the back are not quite up to standard, in my opinion. The vast majority of them, and and that is where the revolution needs to take place. I think Arteta needs to be ruthless and replace and upgrade and instill instill the right habits. He's trying. I, I trust in Mikel Arteta to do the right things. I think he's trying to get the right messages across, but. The defensive platform is not there. Concentration lapses, but they can't continue to haunt Arsenal in this way. And yeah, Arsenal should have won that game two or three nil, yet they somehow can conspired to concede twice. One from a short corner where Pepe turns his back on it and jogs back into the box. Lacazette's on his heels, doesn't see the 2v1 early enough. Bang, it's a goal. The second, the second one is, is, is great forward play, but at the same time, no communication between the centre-halves. There's a disconnect there. They, they, yeah, I, I think you could point towards them. And also, actually, the goalkeeper for coming off his line. I think he stays put. It's a much harder finish 
for Neil Mopay. So, so look, I just think in defensive areas, Arsenal need need better players. Simple as that. And spoken and that's, with feeling. And that spoken is, with feeling. Yeah, and that and that I, I'm afraid is only part of the issue. Um, but for now, that's <laughs> enough. <laughs> okay, uh, Seb, what do you want to get off your chest? Um, I just want to give a little bit of shout out to my friends at Weymouth. I've got a huge amount of time for, for the work that Mark Mosley's done there and everyone at the club. And they are the National League South and National League North has agreed to a playoff tournament to finish their respective seasons. But the clubs are going to have to bear the cost of all the testing kits and the provisions needed for uh, for the restart. And they've got a, uh, a GoFundMe going and they're trying to raise £50,000. And they've made, I think, uh, they're up to about 9,036 hours. And uh, I spoke to Mark yesterday, and uh, as he said, uh, his players deserve the right to compete. So um, if you've got a, a National League South or North club near you who are doing the same thing, um, I'm sure there's lots of these going on in the country, then um, you know, do try and help out because um, you know there's a, an awful lot of work that goes on to get these clubs to this point of the season. They need to finish it. Yeah, I agree with that. It, it seems terrible that clubs are almost... Well, they're penalised for success, aren't they? Surely, yeah. surely, the, surely the league... Hang on. Surely the league... The sponsors, the uh, the FA, if they want these, you know, if they want these competitions to to be complete, surely they can chip in here. I mean, that it seems it seems incredibly harsh to for the clubs to fund it themselves. That that's that's too much of a, of an ask. You know, they, of course they want to play. You know, you, you got to you got to make it easy for them. There's a, there's going to be a lot of um, the, the schedule is going to change. I think the dynamics of the game are going to change and. Look, I know it's hard to say this after such a long time without football, but no one benefits if the game resembles one of those marathon dance contests of the Great Depression. You know, I think hard decisions need to be taken because there are too many conflicting demands on both the clubs and especially the players. Now, understandably, there's a lot of focus on the future of the League Cup. There's some talk that... There's a move for it to be played without seven Premier League teams next season. Well, that's the thin end of the wedge, isn't it? And as it stands, it looks to me to be a superfluous competition in need of you know, real renewal. What would I do? I'd turn it into a true EFL Cup, unlike that unloved dumping ground for B teams that's been rejected <laughs> out of hand by the fans. I'd be interested in your views. Do you agree with me? Um, And I also hope you've enjoyed today's show. And thanks once again for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.